From reviews to rankings, the big picture is all things movies. From in-depth analysis of the latest flick to sit-down interviews with some of the biggest movie stars and filmmakers on the planet, Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins have got you covered. Check out The Big Picture on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear. Especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he really should have read that release for Squid Game more carefully. It's Andy Greenwald! Do you think I would do well on that show, Chris? <laughs> We're going to get way into that show okay. and talk about how well you would or would not do on it, okay. Andy. Uh, today we're talking about Squid Game. We're also talking about Foundation. We'll talk a little bit licorice pizza and Sandman trailers. And then at the second half of the show, we will be joined by the uh, Reservation Dogs creator, Sterling Harjo, to talk about his wonderful TV show on FX and uh, how much we've loved it. We, I mean, I, was, I guess we'll probably talk about that. That's not like a great question to be like, hey, we loved your show. Any thoughts on that? No, we're going to do the Chris Farley interview with him. We're just going to be like, remember that time you made a comedy for FX? Right. That was awesome. Remember that Repo Man reference? That was amazing. I, I think our listeners can tell this is not often the case because usually we bank interviews and then we build mm-hmm. the show around them. But today... We're just sit, sitting and anticipating Sterling's arrival. So we don't know. We have a, a bunch of stuff to talk about today. I'm feeling a little punchy and okay. he switched yeah. fabric softeners. What? Uh, At yeah, your like age? A, Chris. Well, we have like, uh, I don't know. My wife got like like these like artisanal fabric softeners. And we had like this one called Beach Laundry for a while. Uh-huh. That was really nice. Right. And now we, I'm wearing uh, my sweatshirt. I washed with uh, like basically cut grass. And let me tell you, it does what it says on the bottle. Like, I feel like I have got a mouthful of brass right now. Wait, wait. The oh, oh, I thought you had spent the weekend playing flag football, rolling in grass. No, nor am I listening to all of Sturgill Simpson's bluegrass records called Cutting Grass. It's just, I did just what it smells and almost like tastes like. I, I, I am speechless. You yeah, people who yeah. listen to this podcast know I can generally just you can press a button and I can talk about subjects well, I have not engaged with. Here's another thing about me with, is that I, 
I'm 10 years into my stay in, in Los Angeles and it's there's been some yeah. ups and downs. But I still do laundry with an absolute vengeance only known to people who lived in New York and didn't have washer dryers. Oh, it feels house. so good. I agree with that. So I will just be like, this sock could be cleaner. Going to throw it in there. Hold on. I, I actually have um, Gavin Newsom on the other line. This is a <laughs> drought trap. You've it's been, an intervention. You've been punked and we've all gone thirsty because of your actions. I just, you know what? I, I, I'm going to say something controversial. I, I'm not a believer in fabric softener. I don't use a fabric softener. I wasn't either. My until, fabric is until plenty recently. soft. Yeah, I mean, it's really more of a perfuming action than it is like a softening thing. Are you, you know? a perfuming guy? I mean, again, this is a audio medium. Do you you don't apply colognes and tinctures and oils to yourself, right? Like On you, special you, occasions, I'll wear a cologne. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, like a tobacco, like kind of like muskier thing. Yeah, you didn't know this? No. I guess you never really get that close to my neck. Certainly not in the last year and a half. But that said, back in our prime time. When you you used to give me the big Fredo Michael kiss. Yes, and back then you did have a heady aroma of tobacco, but that 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 was natural. That was straight camels, yeah. <laughs> Scott, wow. No, this is sorry, a what, no free ads. What a podcast already. Um, I just wanted to loosen it up. Okay. Because we got some heavy stuff to talk about. We man. do. We're talking we about do. the fate of civilizations on this show today. We're talking about economic inequality in, mm. in, in Korea. You know, like it's, it's, it's heavy stuff. It's psycho history. Uh, where do you want to start? You want to start with the trailers and build up to bigger shows? No, I think we should start with the, with, I think we should start with the great game. Because I actually think, and 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 I, I don't know if I'm going to pull this off, but I'm going to try to do it. I actually feel like the Squid Game conversation and the Foundation conversation are one and the same. I'm not saying we need to only talk about them in relationship to each other, but I found them to be fascinating as to consider collectively. Can I tell you something? Yeah. 100% agree. Yes! That's exactly what I was thinking. Yes, because what we're talking about here are the two pathways to mass market monocultural success right now obviously neither show has achieved monocultural success but both one has a suddenly has a faster ticket to that promised land than the other and not the one that i think a lot of people expected and i think it's kind of an interesting snapshot of where we are with prestige tv at the moment what happened this weekend and just to set the set the table before we get into the individual shows let's let's just say this Foundation is a 50 or 60 year old science fiction series written by the great Isaac Asimov. It has been through, you know, it's beloved by generations. It's influenced untold science fiction stories and and science, like actual scientists' minds and brains have been expanded by it. Um, Never adapted, considered unadaptable um, for many years. Apple went all in with Batman writer um, David Goyer Mm -hmm. through unspeakable amounts of money at this project, shepherded it over numerous years huge marketing budget. We've talked about it multiple times over the course of its development. Finally arrives uh, on Friday with one episode for with, you know, expecting expecting a lot of glory and a lot of attention for it because it was designed to get those things. And interestingly enough, the reviews really didn't come out until basically the episode was available on Apple. Which correct? I think was intentional. I think that it was embargoed, which is not necessarily the kind of... And I, I don't know that for a fact. It just seems very much like that because generally... Big ticket. Well, shows I think you and I were both chatting on Friday and being like, "Did you have you seen any yeah. foundation reviews yet?" Yeah. So that's usually not a good sign when that happens with movies. You know, I'd love to know what actually went on behind the scenes in terms of 
making it accessible to critics for TV review. But it was accessible. I just think you weren't allowed to review it. Right yeah, about it. Right. It was available. So the screeners were out there, but you couldn't publish, hit publish on your review until Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, Squid Game is something I learned about, I think, Friday evening or Saturday morning. Um, I can't, I, I don't know which came first. Did I turn on the Netflix box in the vain hopes of finding something to watch during, you know, Friday night's regular fruitless search for new content? Or did I find out about it when, probably yours as well, our menchies started filling up with people saying we had to check this out? Who can tell? But the speed with which a Korean language thriller that neither of us had ever heard of took over social media and I'm sure by extension, just people's cues, people's viewing habits over the weekend. It's it's outrageous. It's not unprecedented, but it is an incredible demonstration of just where we are with TV and the power of Netflix to push something right in front of people's eyes. And then what can happen if it catches catches fire there? I I think, well, I'll talk about Squid Game because I like it more. So me too. Let me, Let's start with let me that. just get into that. As far as its uh, sort of reception or its promotion, uh, haven't seen something like this in in this way since maybe Black Mirror, although there have been other examples over the course of the mm-hmm. last few years where all of a sudden, not only are lots of people hitting us specifically up, I think lots of people, but like my my buddy and old coworker, Donnie Kwok, was like, you guys have to talk about this on Monday. I remember when Black Mirror was on in England when it yep. first started coming out and I would see a lot of the, the English football f- people that I follow on Twitter talking about it on Sundays or whatever. And I was just like, why is everybody just like talking into my, my weekly Black Mirror Hellfest or whatever? And I'm just like very intrigued. And that was, you know, you used to have to really go and find illegal streams back then because there wasn't this transatlantic, you know, streaming share going on. It's happened a couple of other times. It's kind of happening a little bit right now with a show that's on BBC called Vigil, which is coming on Peacock. You know, but with Squid Game, this kind of reminds me more of like Fight Club in the Matrix, where I don't even know how to talk about this show mm-hmm. without without taking away anything from uh, the sound of your jaw hitting the floor will be audible multiple times per episode. And uh, we can get into some of what it's about. I don't want to give away too much right. because I think that part of the thrill is starting it and just being like, this show's about fucking what now? Like I, I but the, the 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 word of mouth power of what's going on here, and I do think you're right. I think front page Netflix number one show on the planet. I think right now, mm-hmm. at least according to Netflix, is a huge significant thing. I obviously a lot of uh, Korean pop culture has like an incredible social media imprint, so yeah. I think that there is stuff going on there. Like Donnie was telling me about the actress who plays the pickpocket has like a million more Instagram followers now than she did like a week ago. Like it, it can really be a groundswell. We can get into any of those things, but yeah, I am. This is a real like, wow, it still works. Yeah. Like when I, mean, a, I mean, when a it, cultural thing catches fire, it can just be like for a week. It'll just be like, guys, <laughs> guys. <laughs> yeah. And even just watching it and being like, Oh, all of these things are going to be references and memes. And, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about this for a while collectively. And that's kind of exciting to be a part of. I think it's worth noting, you know, I, um, as recently as a week ago, post Emmys, you and I were talking about our perception of Netflix and, and Netflix's role in 
specifically in the American or North American TV ecosystem and how chasing awards wasn't necessarily their bag anymore and how talent relations in Hollywood was something that they really, really focused on as they were switching from red envelopes to um, something that's just baked into all of your devices. Um, but they've turned away from that, et cetera, et cetera. That may be true. It may, portions of that may be true. But what they're actually focused on is this. This is what all of the global expansion was for. This is what the head start that they got on every other streaming service was for. And when it works, when it lines up, when, you know, they're, creative partners in Korea have an idea like this and can execute it like this, no pun intended, and then just push the button and put it in front of every one of its 200, 300, 400, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of subscribers Netflix has at this moment worldwide. That's what they're doing. You know, they, they, I know that it's redundant maybe to make tech bro jokes, but they literally are Justin Timberlake and the social network being like, do you know what's cool? What, what's cool? Yeah, a billion watchers. Um, no, I we were talking offline off this pod a little bit. We were just chatting back and forth about some of the network shows that are coming on, like yeah. like Ordinary Joe and Wonder Years and La Brea has been on for a few weeks. And I think we were sort of needling Netflix, not that they give a shit, a couple of weeks ago about, oh, is Netflix kind of like the new CBS, the new middle brow, the new kind of, you know, we're going to make lots of lowest common denominator entertainment because we're going to count on the idea that for a lot of people, Netflix is going to be like the Kleenex tissue thing where it's like people refer to it as a Kleenex, yeah. but that's a brand, you know, um, they'll, they'll refer to TV as Netflix, you know, and that they got to have enough enough content out there so that it feels like it's there's something there for all of its hundreds of millions of subscribers. It's 209 million as of Q2 2021. I, I got a little excited when I started but going well past that. You know where their their eyes are. Their eyes are when these other streaming services collapse, we will be there, you know, yep. and there will be one king to rule them all. So, you know, I, I, I kind of look at Squid Game as a refreshing return to like 24 or Lost where something comes on and the most amount of people possible are watching it. And it obviously sweeps kind of the pop culture up into its bosom. Now, I don't know how many people who are listening to the watch had a chance to listen to squid, to like watch any of squid game this weekend, or if we certainly didn't prep people by being like on Thursday, check this out over the weekend. So maybe, maybe we're like, our heads are in the clouds, but I'm looking, if you look at the Google results for Squid Game, it's like affecting the Korean stock market. You know what I mean? Like it's, it is, it is a huge hit. Yeah. And so I think that you were right in saying, this is a phenomenon. We'll return to it. I think that we mm-hmm. should try to be a little bit protective of what comes in the show. And I haven't watched very much of it. So I, you probably know more than I do, but just to I've say- I've watched the first two. So yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. So the show is about, at least in the beginning- about a very, very, very down on his luck, forty-seven-year-old dude in uh, in Seoul named uh, Gi Hoon Song, who is living with his mother and is an inveterate gambler and has a difficult. Well, he, he's made a difficult relationship from with his ten-year-old daughter, and is just trying to stay afloat. And he's, you know, it's it's a great performance, I think, by Jung Jae Lee. And like, oh my god, it's like it's like silent film comedy style. Yeah, acting. he's yeah. he's so physical and you know you see it and it's the kind of performance where you see the smart storytelling choices that they've made where he's not all bad and he's not all good, but it doesn't feel heavy-handed. It's just creating a, a world and a person. And we establish after after 
the relationship with his daughter is established and after um, his relationship to money and risk and physical pain is established, he agrees without knowing exactly what he's agreeing to, to be a part of a potentially lucrative game, game show. Mm -hmm. We don't really know. And then the show gasses us and gasses him and becomes something entirely different. This is not a show you should watch with your 10 year old daughter um metaphorically speaking or otherwise uh this is definitely it goes places that i think people who have heard me talk for a while know that aren't always my favorite in terms of the way it uses like extremity mm -hmm. but the show is a puzzle box and a adventure and the experience even watching it alone as i did Although, you know, maybe with the back of my mind, knowing that 200 million other people were watching it, too. Um, it's really riveting and really thrilling. And it's just shocking. It's, it's kind of exciting. It's fun. I think, you know, it's also not not about something. It's about something. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely about what inequality and economic disparity and economic despair will do, especially to a mass group of people when put in a situation mm -hmm. where they have to try to claw their way out of an, un, you know, basically an unrecoverable situation in terms of their debt that they are under in their society. And also just like the lack of prospects that they have. Um, there's a lot of like other references that I think we could discuss. I do want to give people a little bit of breathing space to watch like a couple of episodes and maybe we can return to this on, on Thursday show or maybe next Monday show before mm -hmm. succession comes back. But you know, I think a lot of people probably are burning through it right now. It definitely has, the, I would say that this first episode is one of the more stunning first episodes of a show that I've, I've seen in a very long time, a very long time in terms of like, where it ends up versus where it begins. Mm -hmm. when, when I first started watching the show, I was like, this is this is pretty cool. I wonder what's going on here. And and then pretty much midway through, you're like, oh, we're going, we're going on a real, real trip here. It's fun too, because you know, I, I think a lot of the if, if you're reading anything about the show or even hearing us kind of dance around it, um, you know, you, you are getting the impression of what it what it feels like or what it might be or what it might surprise you with. I think it's worth saying. So far, nothing in no, no one element of Squid Game is revolutionary or particularly radical. It pulls from threads that we are all culturally familiar with. Um, you know, whether they are um, episodes of Black Mirror, um, whether they are, you know, honestly, the setup is pretty standard broadcast television pilot, mm -hmm. or yeah. whether they are, um, you know, you and your buddies in middle school or high school musing about how the most dangerous game of all is, is man. Um, you know, th these are all things that we know and we've seen. I don't and know how they did it out at Friend Central. That's not how we did it out at Friend Select. Well, you didn't warn people. It, it, <laughs> no. My school is much more genteel. It's like fox, you know, it's like fox hunting. Yeah. But for people. Yeah, yeah. But in Friend Select, you had the um, playground up on the roof, you know, so you could just sort of like spot your prey around the city. No, I, I just mean I... It, it's really a pleasure when all of the elements are sourced from elsewhere, but are brought together in an electric whole that feels very, very relevant to right now. You know, and also the other thing about it, and I don't know where the season goes and I don't know what will inevitably happen in future seasons, because obviously you have a phenomenon like this. After three days, there's going to be more of, in some form. Yeah. Um, I really do appreciate that it's not 
Black Mirror's 60 Minutes musings. And I, I don't mean to use this opportunity to up one thing at the expense of Black Mirror no, or something, it's, but which it's I think just is not, brilliant. I, I think that there's been a lot of like, what if screens are bad for us stuff. Yes. You know? and, yeah. and, and so this episode could be a Black Mirror episode, but I'm very happy that it's not. I'm very mm-hmm. happy that they are committed, at least in the early going, to some longer form of emotional storytelling, just as kind of, so we can feel it a little bit more than just sort of, you know, nodding sagely than turning back to our phones and ignoring everything we just learned. So I th- I feel like one of the reasons why I react so strongly to Squid Game is that it's like you're kind of being taken by the hand and you're being walked into a swimming pool by the by the storytellers and they're saying okay, take take a step. Is this take, how you take, take, take. were a lifeguard by the way? Is this your own? <laughs> you're fine. No, okay. but it's, it's like take a step, take a step in. The water is okay. You see, okay, take another step in. You know, now we're swimming a little bit. We're treading water a little bit, and then in the last twenty minutes, yanks you underneath. You know, which is right when you're like okay, I'm ready to be yanked. And it's all guided and it's all story. Whereas Foundation, despite obvious mm-hmm. you know, achievements, whether it's in special effects, whether it's in the widescreen kind of blockbuster elements that, that it deploys. And it, honestly, like some of the ideas that it's kicking around and Isaac Asimov obviously is going to have this warehouse of like really provocative, really interesting ideas about society and civilization. Foundation is all plot. Foundation is a, a Wikipedia page to start the show. This is actually, I remember, like, I, I was trying to remember why well, the last time I felt this way. And it was when I tried to watch The Expanse, right. which was a similar kind of like, here's a story, but wait, before I get into that, let me just mention the outer rims of this place. And then you have to really start to go back to the civil war that occurred between these people. By the way, did I mention that the moon is like this now? And it's like, uh, okay. Now, I, I don't mind shows like that all the time. And sometimes I think that it's my um, impatience that sort of has robbed me of the experience of watching The Expanse and possibly will come to think of that about Foundation. But I think that you can just, it's just the difference between plot and story. You know, I always yeah. go back to that Seth Rogen thing where he's like, you're giving people uh, what, what they think they want, which is plot, which is learning all about this word, world. But what you're really giving them is story, which is what they can they're they're really going to take from this whole experience. And that is when, when he's talking about super bad, he's like the plot of super bad is these two guys want to get laid. But the story of super bad is these two guys are in love with each other and are going to miss each other when they leave for college. And it's the kind of, the, I don't know what the story of foundation is. I'll stop you there. Foundation needs that plot and that story from super bad. <laughs> like it would be improved. And I, and I know that's glib, but I kind of, I kind of mean it. Um, I want to, Tread carefully when talking about this because it is clearly a labor of love and a massive labor for people involved. I think that there probably are hardcore sci-fi fans, um, generally played by Martin Starr and Party Down, who have been waiting for something like this. And there were moments in the early going of the pilot where I did feel at least a little bit of a charge that this was world building that wasn't Star Wars. It just, you know, that that the, the ships were different, you know, mm-hmm. just anything was a little bit different from just the same type of sci-fi imagery or tech that we've come, we've become accustomed to. And that the, you know, that the imaginations could still be big enough to take us to different galaxies or edges, outposts of the empire, whatever. I'd also say that it's probably a good thing. And, and probably one of the things that David Goyer and, and Josh Friedman said to Apple 
when they were trying to get this moving that got it moving, which is they probably said only with your backing and only on TV at this particular moment in time, could we attempt something this gigantic without doing Joseph Campbell's myth of the hero, right? We don't need to start with Luke on the outpost of the galaxy and then work our way in with him as our point of view character because we can tell that story, which they do do in this pilot to a small degree. But we can also, we don't have to just tell bottom-up storytelling. We can also start at the very top and show how the emperors, plural, exist Mm -hmm. and what that means. And we can go to the side here. And I think the issue ultimately, though, is just comes all the way back to what you said, which is it does feel like we're being taught or lectured and shown things with the purpose of caring about them at some unknown date in the future. And all of this leads me to believe something that I didn't actually think would be possible, which is this show could never exist at any other moment done this way at this scale. But I kind of feel like bizarrely it missed its moment. And what I mean by that is, and we talked, when we talked about the trailer, right? We talked about the book and you, you've not read the book, right? I have not. No. Books. Books a hoot. Book's great. One of the reasons the book is unfilmable is because it's a series of vignettes told across a million years, right? The yeah. book is, you know, the, the way storytelling, you know, you know, you guys, I'm talking to everybody now, know that like Spider-Man's origin in Amazing Fantasy, whatever it was, 15, is like one page. A boy's in high school. He gets bitten. His uncle died. Now he's Spider-Man. Let's get on with it, right? Like that's how storytelling used to be. It didn't have to be first season is boy gets bit by spider. I think the Harry Seldon stumbles across something in his math that says the empire is going to die. It's like a 16 page chapter like in the book. And then it's like a million years in the future and the influence of Harry Seldon's visions and prophecies and, and all this stuff. All of this makes me think that this should have been like a, like a sci-fi show in 2003. This, they should have filmed this with the same budget that like sliders had with Jerry O'Connell. I feel like this show needs limits. I feel like what made Foundation interesting was the size of its ideas mixed with kind of the humility of its telling, if that makes sense. Isn't that kind of what the secret of Game of Thrones' early success was? Because it was a little bit more modest before it, it was, exploded it into widescreen. chamber drama. It was yeah. people going into other rooms and being like, I heard the guy in the other room said this about you. Now, that said, you know... Th- the book also doesn't have the characters for the chamber drama. So a lot of this is created out of whole cloth, you know, and some, I think, pretty clever innovations like the Lipe's Empire stuff so that they can be clones so that the same actor can be in all the different eras of the show. But the other point that I want to bring to you, and I wonder what you think about this. So I feel like it could have been made 15 years ago or it could have been made like two years later because the idea of science being like, you're not going to want to hear this, but things are about to get bad. And the ruling class is being like, we don't want to hear this. In fact, shut up forever is newly relevant in our experience. Well, but shut up forever. But really, I'm just going to exile you to a place called Terminus where you can do some research in case it might be beneficial to me down the line. Right. Which was, I believe, Anthony Fauci from May of 2020 until like November 9th. right? Right. So that piece of it is kind of newly relevant and maybe interested but the show kind of missed that thing. And instead, it's back to the kind of very familiar hard sci-fi posturing of like, 
they can't handle the truth which I've sketched out for them. And the and, the, and then you know, emperors being like, let me explode the heads of fresco cleaners because it establishes that I am, you know, maybe not the best person. So it, it, that, that's not recognizable humanity in a story that I think was based on a very specific post-World War II, you know, we, we, things can go super bad. Right. To Seth and Rogen. if they do, <laughs> and, and if they do, we might, we might want to create an arc of knowledge. And, and that, only our minds can get us out of this. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was like pretty much like the that was the plot of Interstellar. There's plenty of like sci-fi mo- right. shows and movies that are kind of like that. I, th- there was some stuff to like in this this show. So in the first episode, like Andy alluded to, there is, uh, you know this this thing called Imperial cloning, which allows Lee Pace to be sort of like the optimal version of himself, where looking like Lee Pace, he's named Day. Then there is Dusk, right. who is Brother like the Day, older, yeah. wiser. And then there is Dawn, which is the young version of him, like a like a seven year old boy. And I was watching that, and I was like, "I'm in." Uh, uh, w- when can we get this going? Because it would be pretty cool. Like, let's just say, for the sake of the argument, like we are the dusk versions of ourselves, right? In- indubitably, without <laughs> indubitably. a doubt, <laughs> that is so, what I am. So we got grizzled, wizened Andy and Chris, right? For me, then maybe I go with like. 30 year old me high and listening dipset mixtapes when I'm, <laughs> you know, like, right? Uh-huh. That's, yeah. And then that's day. And then Dawn could be me just like gunning down base runners yes. in the Fairmount Sports Association for behind the plate, like just Benito Santiagoing dudes. You know what I mean? Like that, that's a very, I think, forget ordinary Joe. We got to get a show where like a guy gets to live with the old and young versions of himself. I think that's brilliant. And I think that. Well, the danger here is you've really drawn an important and honestly a little bit dispiriting um, distinction because all three versions of you sound fire. Like they sound awesome. I would love to spend time and have spent time with two of the three. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Apple is really, I know they have a lot of money, but I don't really know if they're going to fully fund a show about young me reading books alone and having opinions about them, middle me reading books alone and having opinions about them, or older me uh, watching TV, complaining he doesn't have enough time to read books and complaining about all of it. Like, I just feel like that's not that compelling. But your version sounds dope. I love it. Uh, I like I like that. I thought that the depiction or the, the the rendering of the city, what's the Trantor? Is that the planet that, yes. that the Empire's on? Uh, I thought that that city and then the collapse of the Starbridge was pretty cool. It was like, I watched it on a pretty big TV and I was like, yeah, that's cool. You know, it looked beautiful. Rupert Sanders directed it. Good job. Yeah, I, I can tell. I can tell. It's like you're you're struggling to find things to like here. I really struggled. I found it. I, I I found it really cold and impenetrable. You know, and I think that it it does the thing that historically I've struggled with with when it comes to ambitious genre entertainment, which is we need to push all our chips in to make this as serious as possible just to understand it, you know? And as soon as you're in that place, and especially when you're on this scale, I struggled to find a way in. Just a a sly moment of, I mean, Lee Pace's eyebrows are doing a lot of work. Jared Harris is a wonderful presence on television and does a lot of work just by being there. But, you know, the ways that they talk about humanity in general, just in the most macro ways possible, like all of this is going to be doomed. I mean, this is why I think it was essentially unfilmable 
unless it was going to be like almost like an anthology series. Isaac mm-hmm. Asimov's The Premise, if you will, <laughs> where it's just like these are the different moments in, you know, 50 million years of human history where things kind of could have gone one of two or ways. Or you would have had went, to have basically made what happens on Trantor in the first episode the climax of the first season. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. it would almost be like everything about it would be like Harry coming across his mathematical equation, Harry putting out the call for somebody to come disprove it, all the while, like, these other things of the yes. Empire are happening. There's just like, I got, I, I, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just so far. And I think that, like, again, like, it's obviously such a labor of love. It's obviously a passion project. It's obviously very ambitious. So I'm very curious to check out its development over the course of the first season because I think. Maybe they had to do a lot in the first... I mean, Goyer's talked about how he has eight seasons mapped out. So maybe there needed to be a lot going on in the first episode to set up the rest of the season. So I'm curious to check it out. There were some cool performances. But yeah, I mean... It, 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 you can't... My my. This is not... I don't think this is a concern troll, but this is just a, a point of view on it. Like, this could turn around. It could. It could... You know, there could be untold elements of humanity and humor, things that are still to come. Season three could be when it really gets good. And honestly, when you're dealing with um, Apple, we might get there, you know, whether yeah. whether we, the two of us feel it deserves it For or not. For all mankind fine, is but, a great, is a great right? reason to stay in with Foundation. Because For All Mankind, I had like a little bit of a hard time getting past the first few episodes of the first season, kind of lost track, watched the second season, went back and finished the first season, right. which is stupid. But I was like, this show has gotten great. Maybe Foundation can can do the same thing. I just feel, though, it is worth just paying attention to it because you cannot spend your way to people's hearts when it comes to mass market entertainment. It just doesn't. Right. It doesn't work that way. And it, and it and for me, this was like the first. This was the first skirmish in the post Game of Thrones war to kind of hit our screens. And it's the same coming into it. This, this did nothing to dispel my concerns about totally unrelated, except in the ways that we're considering them projects like, um, wheel of time or, um, you know, Lord of the Rings series. It's just, it, this was designed beautifully and laboriously to just capture people right and just enchant and educate and, and illuminate and inspire and it you f- i watched this episode and i felt the weight i felt the weight of the pressure and the ambition it's hard to engineer a blockbuster man it's hard it it's hard to be like hey we have we spent a ton of money on this and we have huge expectations and the reason i wanted to kind of just a little bit connect this to another project with it just had a teaser t- trailer released which is um is that idea and that it's difficult. It's just difficult to do this, especially with older IP that was beloved in a different era. Um, just want to call. Heim's actually not that old. <laughs> she looks a lot older than Cooper Hoffman, but I guess that's part of the story. Because um, I was worried it was like a Dear Evan Hansen thing, but we'll right. s- we'll circle back. Um, the Sandman uh, is one of the most important comic books ever published. Incredibly meaningful to me. Neil Gaiman series from the late '80s and '90s. Uh, also you know, much obsessed over and considered unfilmable by many people. It's been filmed. It is coming to Netflix. I should also say at the top, I am uh, not unbiased. It's being showrun by an old friend of mine, Alan Heinberg, who I can attest knows and loves this material. So Netflix had this sort of celebration for itself with a name that I don't even want to say because it's so, it's so dumb. It's I, that really, it really bothers me. Is that weird? It's supposed to be, it's the sound that you hear when Netflix boots up. 
I liked your version better. But anyway, they released a minute teaser trailer and I have to say, feeling a little confident about it, not just because I like the guy who made it, but it seems to be doing something that I think maybe would have gotten lost in other planned adaptations. And I wonder if there's some lesson here regards to foundation, which is Sandman has an outsized role in people's imagination because they loved all of it and where it ended up. And I think a majority of the people who have read Sandman and all of its beautiful musings on time and art and dream and literature, they have, they devoured it whole, right? Like 10 volumes on the shelf and they went on a journey with all the different places that it went. What I think is overlooked is that when it started, before it launched DC's Vertigo imprint and heralded this age of a quote unquote adult comics or comics for adults, it was a DC comic loosely based on an existing DC franchise or idea of Sandman. And the first six issues aren't that weird. They aren't that um, profound. These British guys capture an eternal spirit, the, the physical embodiment of dreaming. And then what? Right. And what I loved about the trailer and what what it suggests about the adaptation is that Alan remembered that and is starting the show in the most plotty place possible, which I think is smart for these things before it goes into. I mean, there's later issues of Sandman are basically like, here is why William Shakespeare wrote The Tempest. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I don't think you should start with that. Start with a dude with cheekbones like Tom Sturridge on the floor. You know what I mean? Like, let's, it's, it's TV. And I think that's also the smart thing about having Alan do it. Cause not just that he, he loves comic books, but he spent years working on the OC and Grey's Anatomy. And like, there's a way to do this, you know? And it's not necessarily, I'm going to show you the important weight of something that you have been denied for 60 years. But here, first, you have to watch these 59 minutes. I, I, that seems backwards to me. I maybe, Sandman might not be the right vehicle ultimately to make that point but I thought it was an interesting contrast. I just want to know where the bar is that like Charles Dance and Jared Harris go after yes. their day on the set. And they're just like, what did you do today? I was like, oh, well, I, know. I, I had an orb in front of me and I sort of gesticulated and an equation emerged in light and danced across the face of, of my young protege before I was arrested for crimes against the empire. And what about you, Chuck? Charles Dance is like, I threw an angel's feather up in the air and conjured... I conjured one of the children of death. Like yes, it's yeah. it's well, sibling of death, but sibling of death. Yeah, sorry. There, there is something amazing. I mean, I, I was. I don't know. I know Chris that you're an avid payer attention to of you know the expanded Harry Potter universe, and they like announced which I wasn't until my daughter. But right, like there's a new Fantastic Beasts movie. Yeah, which, isn't it got like the same plot as like Marathon Man? The new one? <laughs> yeah, Pro- probably. <laughs> Where it's like dudes in like Brazil before World War II. (laughs) Right? I guess I haven't read that plot synopsis. Is that that what it's about? Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I was just like, isn't it leading up to World War II? Does it actually take place like in an alternate history, right? All of these movies take place in the, um, all I know about them is from the time that one of them was on HBO before Game of Thrones and, and we were doing the after show live. So we were in a room with Mallory and Jason watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and our takeaway was, I'm sorry, Colin Farrell becomes Johnny Depp and that's an upgrade. That's all I remember. But it is set like earlier in the 20th century. I only was bringing this up because this movie is called Secrets of Dumbledore and there's hot Dumbledore in it because Jude Law has entered the chat. 
Jude Law has now entered the chat. And so like all of these British actors, it is just as much of a tradition now. You get to do, I'll, I'll name check it, you know, you get to do your Lear and you also get to do your CGI wizard. They right. all do it and they get their paychecks and they buy their country houses. But it's just part, like, do you think that RADA, like the, this, the school in London now has a course in just CGI bullshit? They're like, you're going to stand here. The ping pong ball is going to be here. They just want your accent. And if they, they don't, they should. It. And if, they they, should. if that's a business idea, you and I should investigate it. 100%. Teaching incredible, like got people who have been doing Pinter for 30 years would be like, <laughs> here's the thing is uh, Chris Evans is going to look at this tennis yes. ball over on the wall. Here is the premise, according to wikipedia.org, okay. of this new uh, Fantastic Beast movie. Several years after the mm. events of The Crimes of Grindelwald, mm. the story takes place partly in Rio, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, oh. and partly in Berlin, Germany, and leads up to the Wizarding World's involvement in World War II. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With Grindelwald's power rapidly growing, Albus Dumbledore entrusts Newt's commander and his friends on a mission that will lead to a clash with Grindelwald's army and lead Dumbledore to ponder how long he will stay on the sidelines in the approaching war. Okay, I'm allowed to say this. I'm not sure how many people of our listeners are. Just going by names, I feel like Grindelwald is on the wrong side of World War II here. Do you know what I mean? I feel like maybe he would be more of a target of World War II than one of the instigators. That's just my, you know, back of the notepad scratching here. Uh-huh. Uh, I Thank you for telling me that. Because one of the things that I said to my daughter when I said they cast young Dumbledore and she was like, no, when she saw the picture, um, was I wasn't sure if she should be seeing these movies because my understanding is like the Harry Potter series, they kind of, the characters age every year and like the level of intensity ages every year sure. now now that i know that this is basically like the collapse of europe and like the beginnings of fascism in the wizarding it sounds world, like an alan first novel yeah i think maybe we should see it yeah. but i think that it's probably best to keep her away from it so thank you you've done me a service the only other thing we can we can uh leave sandman there i obviously the licorice pizza trailer came out oh, yeah, today. i don't really know if we have a lot of takes here's my take yeah much like the David Bowie song, Life on Mars, mm-hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson is just good. Yep. <laughs> this movie looks incredible, even if it is a uh, mishmash of Days of Confused with Punch Drunk Love, with Inherent Vice, with a loving homage to growing up in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I will be seeing this as soon as humanly possible in the most extravagant way possible, hopefully at the New Beverly with like, 45 minutes of trailers and shorts beforehand and a giant cherry Dr. Pepper or something. It just looks awesome. It looks awesome. And and Coops especially looks like he's having a blast. I want, I hear everything you're saying and I just want to counter it with a very, very um, humble and heartfelt. Does it? Are we sure? Are we sure this looks good? I, I don't think it looks that good. What? What are you comparing it to? Any Here's the thing. This is already kind of a fraudulent conversation because anything P.T. Anderson does in my mind and in many people's minds is worth seeing and is probably going to be better than almost anything else. I also am very much of the opinion that an artist of his caliber sometimes sit sit a couple plays out. Sometimes you don't always throw 100 mile per hour heat. Sometimes you throw the the change up. 
right? And uh-huh. you, you, you work out different muscles and you get some things out of your system. And then it leads you to the next thing. I am one of the minority of PTA fans who does not particularly care for Punch Drunk Love. But clearly, he had to make Punch Drunk Love in order to make There Will Be Blood and The Master, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what this is. And I found it sort of, conf- I just, I didn't, I didn't respond to it. I did not respond to the trailer. It did not make me that excited. It made me a little bit confused because it, it felt like it felt like a heat check, Chris. It just felt like a heat check. Like he's done. Well, how can it be a heat check? But also, so are you saying this is the changeup, or are you saying yeah, this, this is, is the like right? So it it would be more of a like refusing to shoot from outside the paint. Not that you and I know anybody who does that. <laughs> right. I mean, when he could have dunked. And instead, just passed it. Like, because he's done the 70s in the San Fernando Valley before. Mm-hmm. He's done love letters to cinema, mm-hmm. right? He's cast two unknowns as the lead, which is interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't know. Well, I think that if I have anything I noted, which is mostly just that, like, some of his contemporaries, be it um, Wes Anderson, or mm-hmm. maybe even Noah Baumbach, you know, have settled into a type of movie that they make. This is where I was hoping and you would go. Yes. I think that most people want Paul Thomas Anderson to be Stanley Kubrick and that like every movie he makes is a huge cinematic event. I think it is anyway. And that it somehow generates a huge like conversation about like yeah. trying to unlock what it's about, trying to think about what, you know, what he's trying to say with it. And when he makes a movie like, I don't know, like Inherent Vice or or something that seems like a little bit more straightforward and comic and tender that it's like, oh, do you just want to make stoner movies? Do you want to make cool stoner movies with good soundtracks set in 1970s California? And I'm like, I don't know. Is like, is there like a, a surplus of good stoner movies set in California? Totally. There's a few of them, but like, do well, I would just as soon take five more of those than like five more foundations, you know? I agree with you. It, I... I... I'm very eager to see what this is. And I really, 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 really hope that this is just me waking up on the wrong side of the futon in, in North Hollywood this morning. Like, and that it's <laughs> actually great. Like I, it probably will be, I think it, it is a different conversation when you're talking about an artist like him, because you know, it's not, they're not all masterpieces, but everything is worthwhile and everything is yeah. part of the larger thing. And not many people get to make movies like that at all. And I think that, your point about being one of the few auteurs and then wanting to change it up is a real thing. You know, this is a digression that maybe we'll talk about more in full at a different point, but I was thinking about Colson Whitehead who has a new book out and his last two books. Harlem Shuffle, yeah. His last two books, um, The Nickel Boys and The Underground Railroad, which inspired the Barry Jenkins series, both won the Pulitzer Prize. And I, I was realizing that not only does he write a book basically every two years, but he just writes them in different genres effortlessly and how rare that is. And when you compare it to someone like Jonathan Franzen, who has a new book coming out every eight years, he delivers another like definitive 700 page opus about the American nuclear family, Mm -hmm. you know, and different permutations of it. And what do we want out of these people? But I want a new PTA Anderson movie. I am with you on it. I, I don't know. I don't know why the trailer didn't get me. 
Well, well, I mean, usually he has a couple of different approaches in his trailers. Like, you know, typically, like I remember the master especially had like a yeah. bunch of different like weird looks. So, you know, this seems like a much more comic affair than the master, but who knows? Maybe it's a little bit more dramatic. It's a little bit more tense and we'll see some different looks in different trailers to come. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have our interview with Sterling Harjo. We'll also be back on Thursday. I think we're doing a... Well, regular show on Thursday. So yeah, it's next week that we have a mailbag. So we'll, we'll put out a call to mail for mailbag questions shortly. Thanks for listening to The Watch and please enjoy our interview with Sterling. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, Right. To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise. But if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Sterling Arger, thank you so much for joining me and Andy today on The Watch. Uh, Reservation Dogs is, is one of our favorite shows of the year, and it's just been so awesome to talk about it over these last few weeks. And we're so excited to find out more about it by talking about it with you. Yeah, thank you. It's been good hearing your... Uh, as I, you know, I got sent your the episodes uh, as they were coming out. And yeah, it was really cool. Thank you for being fans. And, you know, it's interesting because like there were so many things that you got really spot on. I mean, like... Specifically, I remember a Linklater connection, which like, you know, is a big influence and all of that stuff, you know, like all of that sort of in was a big influence on me. And, um, and also like, 
any films that involved kids hanging out, whether it's Days to Confuse or Stand By Me or Goonies or The Lost Boys or or Friday or, you know, Boys in the Hood. Like it was like all of that is what I was raised on, you know, and I hadn't seen anything like it in a while, you know, like I wanted to kind of shout all of that stuff out, but also um, it felt like the perfect vehicle I mean, because native storytelling and film and cinema has been so behind to the point where no one even knew what the real life was like. And so in a way, it was like so weird to be doing something that felt so radical that was just really telling the truth and showing regular people, you know, and those references in those films felt like the perfect way to package a story about native kids, you know, and like kind of something that felt familiar, I think, to especially people our age, but like also felt new in a, in a way as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I appreciate all of your thoughts and references. And you know, yeah, I thought I, I thought I caught the the shot right outside of the scrapyard. I think it's in Come and Get Your Love where before Kirk Scott does his uh, little thing about string theory. Where it's like right out of Repo Man, where they're oh, burning yeah, the totally. stuff in the yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the director, yeah, like, the director of that uh, Black Horse Low from that episode, is a big uh, Repo Man. Uh, we, I mean, he's a cinephile, and so we t- yeah. talk a lot about. And like, it's great to have these friends that have these different perspectives and and influences because you know when I'm with Black Horse, it's like you know it's like you know Repo Man and. Tarkovsky and and you know like Holy Mountain and like El Topo and then it's like you know with Tosba we would talk Casavetes or we would talk um, driver uh, license to drive you know because it's this driver's license <laughs> she literally like at the end where there's a moment where Laura Dannon gets out of her car and like kind of leans over on the car and is telling him that she doesn't mean toilet telling Bill Burr that was just a straight exact replica reference from license to drive when he gets out of the car at the end stocks to mercedes i think um so good yeah and like it was like you know and our first shout out is to tarantino with the title uh but then it was like well what does he do that, that i love which is like he gives homage to all of this amazing cinema and it's like well what does the new version of that look like where we're referencing something that you know, these, these, these films from the eighties and nineties, you know, like, like how do we shot those out? And also like, I love like that there's something not pretentious about shouting out one of the most iconic scenes of platoon, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, we're not trying to be like, yeah, yeah. We're not trying to change the world with these homages, but like, it's, it's more about giving people something familiar and, and funny um, to, because like, I mean, look, like I think growing up in rural Oklahoma or anywhere that's rural and small, you do live through, um, pop culture references. And so especially these kids, I wanted to show them kind of their, their perspective and point of view was living through, um, is living through pop culture. And it's like, what does their point of view look like? Well, it's always more dramatic and like, it's always bigger and it's always, there's always more happening. I mean, I remember like walking train tracks when I was young and we walked all over my hometown of Holdenville. And, you know, in my mind, it was the town that stand by me took place. And it was like any day now we're going to find a dead body or, (laughs) 
or you know, Kiefer Sutherland's gang is gonna like track us down and fight us. You know, it, it felt like that. You know, yeah. um, and I think part of it is like creating your own fun. You know, like your own excitement in a small town. And for me, these kids do. It's like, you know, let's steal a chip truck and. You know, it's just like you create your own mythology, I think. And that's a, kind of what I want to do with the show. Well, it's also that you understand your own stakes, right? Because right. if you're in a small town walking on walking on railroad track or actually stealing a truck, like that is the biggest event of the year, if not like the decade. Right. And the show keeps its focus on that, those level of stakes. We understand right. how big these things are for these characters because we're right there with them. Right. And at the same time, they face the biggest stakes, which is death. You know, and I think there's something about like sort of rural storytelling that I love, which is like Flannery, you know, it's like Flannery O'Connor or like watching like, or like even like um, uh, Faulkner as I lay dying. I mean, like that is such a like story that I, I, I love, like, 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 like mama needs to get across the Creek, you know, and we're going to pay hell to get her over there, you know, but we're going to do it, you know? And like, I, I, like there's this code baked into that, that I feel very, I feel a connection to that code. And that like, I, I think that Southern Gothic in a way does stuff really well, where it's like, what is the, what, what should we all be most concerned about? Oh, the mm-hmm. death. I mean, like, that's the big one. I mean, we, we are concerned about all this other stuff and my wife, I can, or whatever. And it's like, why aren't we worried about that more? Like, why aren't we constantly thinking about it? You know, and I am, and it's like, you know, and I, and I feel like some of that literature does that. And it's like, that's, you know, it's like, I always had a problem. Like I didn't, I, like, I didn't like the film Nebraska. And like, anytime I just feel like you're, they're making rural folks seem like idiots and these stereotypes, I hate that. Cause there's so much more knowledge and, and, you know, it's like if the shit hit the fan and all of our food systems broke down, like I would be in the country, you know, because they know how to live and they know how to survive. And it's like, I'm not going to be hanging around my lawyer buddy. Like maybe my doctor buddy <laughs> needs to come along, you know, but like, um, I don't know. It's like, I, I just always grew up with these people in my town and I always just had this love for the knowledge that they carried. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I had a big family, big native family. So if someone was always dying, that's like, fuck man. Like there's a lot of shit going on. Like, and this is the worst. Of, like, why are we not talking about this? Like, why is that not on the news? You know, it's like, so I don't know. I feel like that's what the show is concerned with as well. It's like how death ripples through a friend community or a community at large, but also um, the humor of like how, how you sort of uh, create your world and your drama as well. I guess I want to, um, go back a little bit just in terms of the development of the show, just because, um, you know, reading a little bit about you, knowing about the films that you were making, you know, that you live in Oklahoma, stayed in Oklahoma. And I heard you on Mark Maron's podcast talk about a project, you know, that went a little bit further down the road in terms of TV development. And ultimately, you know, you were not, your creative vision was not what they were looking for, right? Or that they expressed that in some way or another. Um, All of this to say, when this opportunity came about, why did FX have your trust? You know, as, just to frame it that way, like what, what, con, what were those early conversations like um, about what you were bringing? And yeah, well, the early conversation was Taika vouching for me. Right. And that brings so much to the table. And, you know, he's a beloved human being and, and, and artist and they love him a lot there. And so just the fact that he 
wanted to walk a project in that I had and, um, you know, that was enough trust for them. But then, you know, I did feel like at first, um, I think in any case that, you know, there's a bit of a like probation period where it's like, okay, hopefully this guy knows what he's doing. Um, and I remember feeling when they, when they, um, when FX really, you know, it was once we started writing the scripts and I wrote the next three after the pilot, Tyke and I, uh, wrote the pilot and then I wrote the next three that's before the writer's room started because we got shut down during the pandemic when we were about to Taika was going to come direct the pilot and so then I think like just them seeing how I crafted the next few episodes they the trust got like grew um, but I mean for the most part it was like Taika like my friend Taika vouching for me and you know um, we had just been old friends and had a similar sensibility and always read each other's scripts and one day we came up with this idea and luckily and it was easy because we both had scripts that were sort of similar like my dad's a martial artist uh, instructor since I was four in rural Oklahoma still is his day and he um, started Taekwondo and now it's more of a mixed thing, but, um, and his name's Brownie. He's uncle Brownie's named after him. And there's a lot of things that are similar, but um, um, you know, so I, I had a script at one point that was about these native kids that were getting bullied and they knew of this legendary martial arts instructor that lived in the woods and was like a recluse, you know, like with that story. And like, they needed to go convince him to help them fight. And so he starts training them in Taekwondo and takes them to start fighting. And so, and it's really obviously about, you know, it's more about what they teach him than it is what he teaches, you know? And uh, so that was one idea. And then Taika had one that, that was great. And it was like this kid in a Maori village in New Zealand becomes a vigilante, decides to become a vigilante and clean his, his community up. And like, uh, I just remember him t- talking about this one shot where it's like this kid with a mask and a cape on and he's just like sitting on a really short house, just like on the corner, like he's looking over Gotham, but it's just like this little, you know, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, we just sort of took those two ideas and like uh, expanded on them and put them together and then, you know sculpted whatever we came up with. I guess it's just so noteworthy because what you came up with and what we just loved watching unfold over the course of the season was I mean, it, it's not so Machiavellian as this, but it was almost like a Trojan horse show where you watch the first episode and here are these four kids and we understand that there's death in their life recently and they want to escape. And that's the action of the show and they're gonna, they need money and there's hijinks that will ensue. And then over the next few episodes, you know, it just sort of mutates and evolves and becomes something so much richer and deeper and less about these four kids with this specific action plan and more right. about the community that made them, that they have this love-hate relationship with and and, you know, and by the end of it, as you probably heard us say, we want to watch an episode about literally every person that's ever come on right. the screen. Um, right, right. How much of that thinking was baked in from the beginning, that if you can get this opening right, you can open it as wide as the lens could go as wide as possible? You know, it was interesting. I mean, like, I mean, I think some of that's basic writing, which is like and, and always knowing that no one knows this world, you know, like I have to. I have to hold like, like there's not a lot of hand holding in the show, but like I had to go gentle into the first episode. It feels like, and part of that was not gentle, just dropping you into this like heist or whatever, you know, and throwing out the slang. And like, I knew people would be unfamiliar with it, but honestly, like I learned a lot, I think just from the English office. Like I remember when I first watched that and there was something about that, that really like 
struck a chord in me. I remember my cousin and I watching it and there's, you know, native humor is very specific, but there's aspects of like that, that humor that felt native to me, you know, like, like some of the rhythms. And I remember, you know, like, I think like teasing's really big in native humor. And like, also like what my cousin and I, I was trying to analyze our humor and it was like, we love watching someone go out on a limb and really go for it and fail. Like, that's just like hilarious. And like, you know, what is the off English office without that? You know, it's David Brett wanting to be a comedian and like just failing all the time. And so, um, but I remember taking a couple of episodes to really the rhythms of that and the language and, but it hooked me. Like once I did, it hooked me. And like, um, and I, and I always thought that would be really cool to, to try to do that with native show because, you know, in, in the native world, that was such a conversation. It's like, man, like I wish there was a show with native humor. Like someday you ought to do a show that shows our humor, you know, it's different, you know, and like, there's just constantly something that I thought about and was talked about. And I had a comedy group and, you know, we, we, and, and honestly, without that comedy group, we wouldn't have been able to do this show because, we it was trial by error it was, it was like trial and error of like what works what doesn't work like what do non-native people laugh at like we bomb a lot like what like like how do we give them permission to laugh with us and not feel the guilt of genocide and like you know just be in their heads you know i was like how do you do that and so so whenever it came to the show it was very just it felt just like writing into a world like how i would write to any world that no one was familiar with and it was like start in this way that we drop you in and then just start kind of painting the portrait of this community. And, but the point was always to get to the hunting episode. Mm -hmm. You know, the point for me was like, I want to go, we got to go through all this stuff and world building, but I want to get there. Like, I want to get to where I can do that. You know, and like that, that episode is just me and my dad hunting growing up. I mean, like I literally like, we used to hunt across the road and we didn't own the land and, you know, some Texas ranchers bought it and I always thought it was ours, but it wasn't. And then like, you know, I was like, you know, and then I remember the, all of a sudden the, the ranchers put cattle on the land and then we couldn't, it was just like cows were everywhere. And then all of a sudden they bulldozed the whole thing. And like, but like there was a mythology to this land and like this, I just didn't know when I was growing up that it wasn't ours. And I don't know. Like, and, and those conversations, I mean, like, I, I think like, I, uh, you know, not just native things, but like, there's not many episodes of hunting, you know, in, in TV. And, and there's a lot of people that hunt, you know, it's like, it's not that they're, there's not that it doesn't exist. And there are people that feed their families in that way. And like, I, I wanted to sort of show that. And there was one trope that you always see in every uh, show where there's a hunting thing happen or movie. They always like line up the crosshairs on the animal and then they feel sorry for it. And they, they do drop. the deer hunter they, thing. They don't yeah. shoot. Yeah. So that's why I have her at the end, line it up, look at it, turn her, like pick her head up and look at it and then go back down and drop it. You know, it's like, I just want to do the opposite of that. Um, and so, uh, but like, one of the things that I wanted that episode to be about was like, when you're in the woods hunting, um, it, you know, my dad would always say like, it's not about killing an animal. Like it's about being in the woods. And, and what you realize, I think is that it's therapy and it's like, and, and if you're with a parent, it's a way that you get to get away from everything and talk. And so for me, Willie Jack and her dad, it was like this place where they could safely go and be alone and finally sort of talk to each other about how they feel about Daniel. And so for me, it was like always trying to get to those episodes, you know? Um, and, but the other episodes I felt like were essential to get us there. And what's interesting now is like, 
well, now, now we kind of broke this thing up. But I mean, like, I wanted, like, another episode was like, I want to get to where people will accept the dear lady, you know, because that's something that right. I grew up with, like, knowing. And one thing that Tyke and I talked a lot about was, you know, in our communities and in, in, in indigenous communities, that supernatural stuff isn't discussed like in a precious way. It's just matter of fact. And you don't question it. And it's just like, yeah, like, you know, I've heard that story of like every community, everyone that I know from each, all of these tribes has a story where their uncle picked up a hitchhiker and saw that she had hooves. And, you know, it's just like, it's these like legends and it's like teaching people how to be and warnings and all this stuff and it's parables and, you know, it's, um, it's mythology. And, and, but like the way that it's approached in our communities, it's just truthful. Like, it's just like a fact, like, you know, uh, there are things out there that we don't understand. And I wanted that to be the feeling in this show where I can do that. Like I can show a woman that has hooves as feet and the audience will go like, okay, uh, we're in, like, we're still, we're still in, you know? And so it'll be interesting with season two, now that we've done that, like, where does it go? You know, like, how do you, how do you even surprise and change even more? And, well, because you got to surprise yourself now. You know what I mean? Cause we're, we're used to the surprise. I mean, those vignettes, those five, six and seven, yeah. Andy and I talked about a lot, which was like, I don't know if you would say that they're technically bottle episodes in any way, but they're obviously like sort of solo adventures for the right. each kid. And you could look at those as digressions or something, but they actually are in some ways more essential than any of the other episodes because they, you, you once you finally find out what actually happened with Daniel, like you've been prepared for that moment because you understand right. how it's impacted all of those kids individually in such a profound way. So what do you do like when you're when you're writing the next season? Like, do you are are you like okay? Well, is there a format or like a three model now? Of, uh, I've had three days in the writers' room <laughs> and I've already blown it up like three times. You know, it's like that's what I do. Like, like I never knew what a showrunner did really until like I was doing it. But like, I had had this comedy group and we would try sketches and talk about them. We never wrote anything out. We just talk and then we would change it and make stuff work. But like for me it's about holding our feet to the fire. Like, like what is this show? And we had an episode in my, in yesterday, Friday's writer's room, we had an episode that we were all excited about. We ended it being excited about that episode, but it was also a rough day and you have rough days in writer's room where it's like, Oh, like nothing's working. And so when I came back this morning, I thought about it all weekend. And then this morning I said, um, all right, that episode's like, that's not the show, right? Like it's not like, we all know that and but we wanted it to be but it's not so let's throw that out and then let's throw out everything that we thought and then what if we start here and where do we go you know and so that's what we did we had a good day you know like felt everyone was very happy with it that'll probably happen a few more times and um you know it's like i think that i mean look whenever i watched atlanta especially season two when i watched that and i saw the teddy perkins episode I, it did to me what great cinema has done to me from the beginning and it made, and, and why I want to do film, why I wanted to do be a filmmaker, you know, it excited me in a way that like, I was like, whoa, like, like, like there's so much more that's possible. And, and that shows just so good that like, there would be no reservation dogs without Atlanta. Like it cracked open this way of storytelling that like, I feel like gave me the freedom and the courage to know that an audience can go with you. Um, and 
and yeah, man, I mean like, and, and then the, the trick is like, how do you, you, how do you make sure you capture that once you've done it once, you know, it's like, okay, we got to do it again, you know? Um, and I think that's what's exciting about it. And it's a challenge. And like, you know, as a race, it's time too. It's not like you have four years to just sure. lie around and say, Oh man, let's try this. You know, it's like, no, it's like, this is coming quick. You know, like we have to figure it out. I want to ask you about casting because one of the real pleasures in watching the first season was seeing whether it was Paulina Alexis as Willie Jack or Wes Studi as Bucky just deliver, you know, in such surprising ways um, from, from either what I thought I knew about them from, you know, in in Paulina's case, two episodes of your show versus a lifetime of watching Wes Studi on the screen. And the more I thought about that question, the more I realized it's less about, I think, what did you see in them? that gave you the confidence that you could cast them and write these sorts of right. moments or emotional beats and more about why didn't I see it? Why had right. I never seen that before well, in I my own like, expectations? Yeah. And Zon, you mentioned Zon. Like, I think that and Zon, like, I mean, he's incredible. I feel right. like he must've been having the time of his life. Well, getting part, yeah, part of it was Zon as I'm friends with him. So like, uh, I had worked with him on another project that never saw the light of day, but like, and he was in my film Miko where he plays a evil guy. And uh, but my experience with him while we weren't shooting was he's hilarious. And so I was like, I'm a, I always told him, I was like, I want to write a comedy for you, man. You got to do a comedy. And he's like, yeah, no one ever writes a comedy for me. you know. Um, and he's so funny. And like, but all of them are funny. And knowing that, I mean, you know, like if you watch Wes in was mystery men where he's like the oracles, right? right. Like, spiritual, yeah. yeah. Like he's, you know, like he's capable of it. And just like, and then Gary Farmer is a legend as far as native cinema goes. Like, you know, it's like, there are three things to watch and it's like power highway, dead man and smoke signals. And he's in all of them, you know? And, um, uh, and you know, he's, he kind of acts circles around Johnny Depp and Johnny Depp sort of the straight man to his like comedy. And it's hilarious. And, you know, um, so it was always like, I feel like I always, I don't know. And then also just knowing the communities. I mean, like I've yeah. traveled to so many reservations for my career to show my films or their comedy group. And it's like, you just know the communities. And it's like, there are so many amazing, hilarious stories. I mean, that's the main thing that I think we do in, in indigenous communities and native communities is laugh. And it's like, you know, it's like uh, there would be no survival of genocide without that sense of humor. And to be able to, and I just didn't see these people. So like whenever we were casting, it's like, we're not going to find them all in Hollywood. Like they're not just going to be there. Like we have to go out and find them. And it was like, Mm -hmm. you know, you just see something special. I mean, like Paulina was originally uh, auditioning for a Laura Dannon and she was just so funny that Tyke and I were like, we have to put her in the show. Like she could be, and and Willie Jack was originally a a boy. So we're like, no, we're going to, we're going to basically tailor this to her now, you know? And, um, she was just so funny in her audition. She was like, Hey, like I just like really confident. She was like, you know, I want to be a cheerleader. I want to like ride a horse. Like I want to like do Indian relay horse racing, uh, MMA fighter. I mean, like she was listing kind of like what she does in her episode. She was in like, the show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah She's like listing all the stuff. And it was just like, she's so funny and confident, but also like, I feel like in every native community, there's that her humor, she hits this like central, like sort of humor, that encapsulates native humor to me. And part of that is watching her shine and like letting her go. And I learned early on when I made her, when I filmed the pilot, it's like, Oh, like 
she, I mean, there's not just like her humor and delivery. Like I, I, right off the bat, I was like, you get to do whatever you want. Like just take what I write and put your sauce on it. But there's another thing that she does. And I would notice this when we were shooting. She somehow naturally just knows where the camera is. And like, we'll do a move or, or just fill the space up in a way that I've rarely seen, or she'll do something like pop her hat as the cowboys riding by, or like, just like something physical that I just like was pretty in awe of like watching her do that. And, you know, it's funny. We're like at the uh, TCA is getting interviewed about the show. And there was a journalist that was like, um, Paulina, this question's for you. Um, where did you get your comedic timing? Like, what did you train for? Like, how good are you? And she's just like, she's like, my wife's like, your comedic timing. And she like, looked at us and was like, and we we're like, how are you so funny? And she was like, oh, uh, my dad's funny. My brothers are funny. My uncle's funny. You know, it's just like, it's so natural to her. It's so natural to her. And we just found, you know, it's like, with uh, our casting director, Ashley Minton, and we found these these kids. And, and you know, I like, the kid lame, you know, like one of the pleasures is watching him grow, you know? And like yeah. at first, because he was so young and he never acted before. I mean, I mean like his mom promised him like a hamburger if he would audition and like, he wasn't even going to audition. And like his mom just made him take an acting class to like uh, get him out of the house. Cause he's playing video games too much. And so he like begrudgingly goes and auditions and you know, so at first I was afraid to give him too much. So that's why in the pilot, you kind of yeah. see him, accenting things and kind of, you know, filling in some gaps and stuff. But like then I, when I was writing the um, big dear lady episode, it was like, it was going to be him and another character because I was afraid that he couldn't handle, pull pull the weight, you know, and handle it with just him yeah. and Don. So there was another character to bounce off of. And in the end it felt fake because it felt like I was writing it for those reasons. And it felt like he disappeared in it. So I just like really just kind of dove off the cliff and was like, all right, I'm going to give him this whole thing and I'll just work with him. And to see how serious he took it and how good he was. And like, you know, I was not after like a couple of takes, I was like, Oh my God, like he's, he's got it. You know, um, that like, I was just so impressed to watch him and how he grew. Uh, during the show. And then, you know, he gets cast in Spielberg's like next film. Like, Oh no I shit. Live, really? Yeah, he's like one of it's sort of the the one that's based on his childhood. Yeah, yeah, the he Seth Rogen one. Yeah, like yeah, he plays plays uh, Spielberg, one of Spielberg's childhood friends. Like, just Catherine. I and guess so he's working with Spielberg now. You know, like that's pretty cool that you grow up watching things like Spielberg movies, and now he's right. checked out your show In and Spielberg <laughs> taking right. ideas and actors. I know that's exciting. Like uh, it's funny. Like you know, I, I think. I don't know. There, there's something about those films. I mean, like, look, like I, I, if you see my other films, they're darker, you know, like they're, they're, they're darker. I mean, like, um, and one's a thriller and there's, there's a lot about death, but there was always humor in them. Um, but with this show, it was more of a shout out to that type of cinema, like Spielberg and, and, you know, like that eighties and nineties stuff that was like, I don't know, there's something, um, I feel something very nostalgic about it. And I feel that way in the show, you know, it's like, and you know, Friday, I always love Friday, like Friday, you know, it's like when you're talking about South central LA, it's always sort of um, framed in this way that is like super dangerous and, you know, and there's probably aspects of it that are, but also it's a community and the way that they present that 
in Friday, you know, it's a comedy, right? And like, you have to present it in a way that it is. And it's a celebration of this community and survival. Um, and I remember like, that was a big reference whenever we were looking at the neighborhood and the homes. Mm-hmm. Because I think in a lot of like stories about native people, there's the tendency to try to like, I don't know, it's like just this poverty porn where it's like, oh, let's look at all poor everyone has. And it's like, that's not how it is. Like there might be one person with shit in their yard, but like, next door there's going to be someone that plants flowers and keeps it very clean. You know, like it's not, it's, it's not like, you know, it's, 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 I don't know. And so I would reference that neighborhood and the pastels and the colors of those homes in Friday, whenever we were talking about the design and how to design these homes. And yeah, I mean, I just think like, you know, uh, and also I think like giving homage to those films and that type of cinema was not expected. You know, it felt new to me. Right. Yeah. You know, the the flip of what Andy's asking about some of the casting choices you made, I guess it could also be said because you saw, I don't know if it's like pathos or whatever, but like, I, you know, Bobby Lee and, and Bill Burr and like, yeah. I, I saw you on Tiger Belly. That was really cool. And I thought you found like a side of Bobby that if you watch the pod, if you watch Tiger Belly, you kind of see this bedraggled kind of, you know, like guys going through it. But maybe if you saw his comedy or if you saw him on Mad TV, you wouldn't know that he is like that. And I thought for that, him and for Burr, you found like these very like note perfect roles that brought out parts of their personality that maybe most people don't get to see. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, and those are, you know, and they're based on real people and and things that I grew up seeing and we all grew up seeing, but like, um, there was always this doctor who would be, you know, from another country and just be kind of there at the Indian clinic. And I was always just like, man, how did you end up here? Like, how did you end up at the Indian clinic? You know? And then there's like, you know, I mean, like Bill Burr's character is based on my coaches, you know, like um, that whole Chogaji toilet thing is something that I directly said to my linebacker coach and <laughs> biology teacher where I would call him that. And I told him that I meant great white warrior. And one day he wrote the word down and wouldn't ask my dad, who also worked at the school and, you know, found out that uh, I've been calling him toilet the whole time. And um, so it was like, but like, you know, there's these relationships with these coaches because those are your mentors in these rural areas. And it's like they can make a big difference. And like he does with the Laura, it's like, they can like connect with you in a way that other people can, because I don't know, like, I think kids that are athletic kind of grow up in this, like, I don't know, you, you're, it's such a physical, I mean, like rural areas, like that's how people get out. It's, it's also like your pastime. I mean, sports are big. And so like coaches can loom large in your life and you can, I think they can make a difference in people's lives. And, you know, it was great. Like Bill Bird wanted to do his, wanted to do, and he's working on an Oki accent. He'd call me and like, kind of give it to me. I'm like, that sounds great, man. <laughs> and then he also uh, modeled his look after uh, the great OU coach, uh, Barry Switzer. He's like, yeah. like a Barry Switzer look, you know, it's like, all right, that's great, man. <laughs> um, when what we get the sense from watching the show and then hearing you talk about it, um, it, it feels like the filming, especially in the production, I mean, even if it was happening during COVID, felt comfortable and familial. You know, you filmed the show in Oklahoma. You brought in people that you'd worked with before, people um, uh, that you knew. And, you know, you're you're kind of in a bubble in a lot of different senses of making this show. Uh, then it goes wide and now it's out there. And I guess I, I'm curious what has been the most gratifying in terms of response and what has been the most surprising. And I wonder if any of those things are connected to 
all of you guys, you know, with massive glow ups at the Emmys last week, looking fabulous. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, like, you know, JJ Abrams came by our table and talked about how much he loved the show, you know, like, I, and I'm an independent film, filmmaker used to no one seeing, you know, a hundred people seeing my stuff at a couple of film festivals or whatever. And to watch it blow up like it did is like, I don't know, man. I mean, like it, it blows your hair back a little bit and it buckles you. And it's like, what? Like you feel good. Uh, but you also, there's also like this exposure that you didn't ever look for, you know? And all of a sudden, you know, I have reporters like, and, and like college professors somehow getting my number and like trying to get interviews or like have me come speak at their like literally like at their school. And it's like, is there's gotta be a better process than just getting my phone number for someone. You know? <laughs> like, um, it's been good, but it, we're all not used to it. Cause we're all been in this industry that felt like we were always going to be clawing at the walls, you know, and trying to get in. And we've been talking and having meetings and panels and discussions about how, how do we represent ourselves? How do we get into this industry more? How do we have more stories of ours on screen? I mean, it's been years of that, you know, 20 years of that, you know, I've been doing that. And to finally it happening, like it's a, it's a really like shock to the system, but also it's wonderful, but also like it's beautiful. And I mean, honestly, my, my favorite thing has been, um, native people writing and, and, and feeling ownership over it. You know, like all of a sudden these kids have something to be proud of and we've never seen ourselves on screen like this, you know, and like to have kids see kids doing kids stuff, but also dealing with tragedy and darkness that we all deal with. And, you know, suicide's a big, uh, a big issue in our communities. And, you know, uh, sometimes conversations about it are, only happening amongst adults in conferences with the door closed and to be able to tell kids that it's okay. Like, you know, we have friends that, you know, Daniel's based on a lot of people that we know, you know, we all know at least one, you know, and like um, you watch how it ripples through people's lives and communities. And it's like, you know, all these kids have one and, or, or at least one. And so to be able to show them something and show them, kids dealing with it in an honest way and still being themselves and still moving through their lives and still picking up the pieces. I mean, that's been the most powerful thing. And then you see like fan art, you know I mean? Like that's connected to that. And I mean, I literally get messages all the time from, I had to quit checking my messages. Like I can't, like I can't, you know, I just can't read them anymore, but I get messages all the time of people thanking me because they lost someone in this way. And, you know, I mean, that's the most gratifying thing for me, you know? I think it's amazing what you just, what you just said, because it does make you think about the show that we just watched and how for all, especially for the, the kids in the show, right. um, they have, you know, they have joy and humor and boredom and kid stuff like at their right. fingertips, but they also have access to tears and pain right. and trauma right. and, you know, neither side uh, neither side gets preference over the other in their lives right. both are present you know and that's just day to day episode to episode and that's in and, in and of itself that's very powerful right and you know i always love shows that 
respect kids in a way that like let them be kids, mm-hmm. but also can show them dealing with tragedy in a way that's like not a way that an adult would, you know, it's like, we just deal. Yeah, I think people of different ages deal with stuff differently. I, I, that's why I like, you know, I think Leon's kind of a big kid too. So to see he, him and Willie Jack kind of bond in this way over their, over Daniel, I, I don't know. Like I wanted to show that I wanted to show like a good dad, you know, and, and like, yeah. um, I don't know, like, uh, and, and, and also the kids deliver on those emotions. I mean, like just the acting and like, you know, uh, Devery Jacobs, I mean, you know, that was tough, like doing all of that stuff in her, the Bill Burr episode where she had to sell the fact that she found him. And, but I've known her for a long time and I've known her as a really good actor and like, she's not had the opportunity as well as much, you know, just like a lot, like everyone in the show, like they, they, all they needed was the opportunity. You know, it's not like, like they've just been there. Like, like no one just gave them the opportunity. I wondered, and this is, I, you know, we can, we can wrap up here, but I, you spoke before about the mixed, the mixed emotions of, of, of the reception and the success. And I, I kind of wondered what this felt like for you, because for, for me and for Chris and for others, you know, it's so exciting to watch your show because it's like, Oh my God, you know, they have a, they, I don't want to use an oil metaphor to someone in Oklahoma, but like, yeah. you, you know, but like you hit a gusher, like there's yeah. endless amounts of story here and pathos and perspective and things that, you know, we don't see on our screens right. or in our lives where we live. And then the flip side of it is these are stories from your life. These are people, you right. know, and as you said, you've been trying to tell them and right. you know, everyone associated with the show has been trying to tell them and right. people haven't been listening. Right. I mean, that's the thing is like, over the years, I've always known that if we got the shot to do what we could do, because I mean, you know, we're in these communities and we're hearing these stories and that's all we do is to tell stories. And it's like such a storytelling culture. And there's so many amazing stories. And 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 after a while, you just think like, well, they don't want to hear them. Like they just don't want to hear them. But then you realize now, like I realize now they just didn't know what we had. Like they, no one had had the opportunity to, to say, Hey, look what we can do. Like, like, look, like, look where this stuff goes. You know, like, it's like, look how far and wide it goes and and weird it can go, you know, and surreal it can go. It's like, and none of what's funny is like none of the writers in season two or season one, look at season one of reservation dogs and think, wow, I don't know what this world is. None of them. They're all just like, this is totally stories from home, right? You know, like there's so many more and it's totally tracks as the truth, you know? And, and I think that that's exciting and, and, and fun to see like, where can we go? You know, we can go crazier, you know, yeah, well, we're we so excited. See where it goes. Well, thank you all for your support, man. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah, man. Thank you the so much for joining us. I still have to know. Today. Wait, Chris, I'm sorry. I got to step over you. I, I, you heard me say it maybe Sterling is shit ass a thing. Is that it a is. thing? It definitely is a thing. And like, uh, you know, you know, it actually came from uh, uh, Zahn. <laughs> Zahn okay. uh, but like, it is a regional thing. And I, I've heard other people talk about how much it was said when they were children. Like, I, I hadn't heard that since my grandma called me that. You know, like, I heard a lot of that. And so I don't know how far it reaches, but like, uh, it reaches as far as Matt Saracen's grandmother. That's that's how (laughs) far it reaches. Right. So it's a regional thing. Cause, cause here I am thinking it's like, it's, it's the limits of our imagination. I'm like, we've, we've reached the limits of cursing. We're done. There are no more permutations. It's so great though. It's such a great, like, it it started with Zahn throwing it in one time and I just started adding it and adding it. And like every time that we could get it, it was like, we even had a game that we played that, (laughs) that my friend started on the crew that was like, uh, that my girlfriend started on the crew that was uh, called shit ass. And it was like, 
when we were shooting, we would write shit ass on a piece of tape. And while people weren't looking, it was like this game that just like, so not only is it stressful making a TV show, but it's like, let's, let's bump the stress up even more. You might have a shit ass sticker on your back. You know, it was just like the best, uh, you know, but like seeing everyone say that in the show, it just like cracks me. I mean, like what's funny is like everyone has that experience where it's like, Oh yeah, my grandma said that or my uncle. Yeah. Used to say it to me. And so all of them say it like they've been saying it for years. Cause they've heard it so much. <laughs> it's great. Even though, you know, the old white couple in the beginning of, uh, <laughs> yeah. when they hit the deer, it's like, you know, she's screaming. Will you quit being a shit ass? She says that so smooth. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's the beauty of the show, man. We're so yeah. grateful for the show. Thank you for taking the time to talk to Thanks us. Lot, man. Yeah, man. Really Take excited. Care. What comes next? Thanks a lot, man. Yeah. Good luck. See ya. We are produced as always by Kai McMullen. Thank you for listening to The Watch. We'll be back with you on Thursday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.